Hey, good morning, everyone. Why don't we get started? Because I don't want to be in a position where I was last time where I ran out of time and couldn't finish the passage. So anyway, if you will, please uh, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Um, last time we started this new section, starting in verse 17 and ending the chapter in verse 34. Uh, I will read the entire passage again just for our so we have the context of the whole passage, but we're really going to be looking at Uh, verses 27 through 34 this morning. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, Paul writes, Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. So here we are. Hopefully, Lord willing, we will finish this this morning. Uh, But just a brief recap of where we were. Uh, Again, uh, we are in the portion of Paul's letter to the Corinthian church in which uh, he's answering their questions And starting in chapter 11, verse 2, through the end of chapter 14, Paul is discussing issues related to corporate public worship in the Corinthian church. In the first part of chapter 11, he dealt with head coverings, which uh, really sort of speaks to the issue of submission and authority and the roles and functions of men and women in the corporate body as they pray and prophesy. And now we're looking, uh, starting in verse 17 to the end of the chapter, uh, the practice and conduct of the Lord's Supper in the church. Then from 12 through 14 will be essentially 
one big long section dealing with spiritual gifts. And you can kind of tell that uh, the things that fire up Paul are the ones that he spends a lot of time on, right? Divisions in the church, uh, idolatry, uh, and then spiritual gifts. So we'll see that and we'll, we'll consider that, Lord willing, in the weeks to come. But anyway, last week when we looked at, uh, we had four points uh, to our outline here, and we looked at the first two last week. And the first two uh, dealt with the conduct at the Lord's Supper and the institution at the Lord's Supper. Now, again, just to refresh your memory, um, when they gather for church, right, it's not like they come to a building like we have here. They met in homes, right? And most likely they met in wealthy people's homes because wealthy people would have the means and the space in order to accommodate a larger crowd. And the practice in the early church, as we saw when we looked at Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Those are sort of, in a sense, you could say, a, an ancient church liturgy, an ancient church uh, directory of public worship. You know, we have one of those here, directory of public worship, that you know, that our denomination says, you know, this is how you should conduct public worship in your churches. So, in other words, these are the things that they did whenever they gathered together as a church. And, the, you know, the apostles' teaching uh, is, in our day and age now, uh, collected in the uh, inscripturated Word of God that we have in the Bible, the God-breathed Word that we have here in our Bibles. So they devoted themselves to teaching. The, the explanation of the Word of God, the reading of the Word of God, and the, expl- and, and the explaining or the exegeting or the expository, uh, the expositing of God's Word. Fellowship. Now, in that day, fellowship usually meant after um, the teaching period, after a time that, that the Word of God, the ministry of the Word of God was, was performed, they would gather then for a fellowship meal. A, a, as Jude verse 12 says, in a love feast, an agape feast, they would gather for a meal, a communal meal. And then after that, oftentimes they would celebrate the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread from Acts 2.42. Now the problem, as we noted last time, wasn't their actual practice of the Lord's Supper so much as it was their practice during the fellowship meal leading up to the Lord's Supper. So they would come into the Lord's Supper with divisions, as Paul says in verse 18. When you gather together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And they would bring those divisions to the Lord's table. Which is not what they ought to do. That's why Paul will say uh, in the very next verse, in verse 20 or two verses later, Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. You cannot bring divisions to the Lord's Supper. You cannot bring schism to the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper is a fellowship. We saw that earlier in, in, in relation to the idols in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul there says, the cup of blessing, verse 16 of chapter 10, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion? Is it not the fellowship, the sharing, the participation, the koinonia of the blood of Christ, the bread which we break? Is it not the communion of the body of Christ? 
Verse 17, for, though, uh, for we though many, many people, are one bread. We share one bread at the Lord's table. And we are one body, the church. For we all partake of that one bread. So the idea of the, of the communion, the Lord's Supper, is a, it is a participation in the body and blood of Christ. Yet because of the way they were conducting their agape feasts, they were coming in and profaning the Lord's table. And they were profaning the Lord's table in this way in their agape feast, in their love feast, in their fellowship meal, by not eating together. The rich would gather, they would bring their food, and they would eat their food themselves. Then the poor would come and they would not have enough to eat, so they would go hungry while the rich are full, bloated, and drunk. And Paul's like, this ought not to be. (laughs) Brothers, this ought not to be. Which is why he's incredulous in verse 22. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Do you not, do you, or do you despise? Do you think down upon the church of God? Do you despise the church of God so much that you're willing to profane the Lord's meal, the Lord's supper? Do you despise the church? Do you shame the poor? Which is why he says at the beginning of the passage, look, when you come together, it's not for the better. It's for the worse. Your church gatherings actually serve to make things worse, and that is a stinging rebuke. The author of Hebrews encourages us, exhorts us to gather together. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, where the author there says, And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. So the gathering of the church is for the one another's. You get a lot of one another's in Scripture. Alleluia, that's, that's the word. One another. And here, the, the gathering of the church is in order to stir up one another in love and good works. We are to show love for one another, and we are to encourage and edify and, and, and encourage one another to, to do good works. That's why the author then says in verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another again, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So again, the, the gathering, the purpose of the church is to, for the building up of one another, for, uh, the, uh, to stir one another for love and good works. Yet Paul says here, look, when you guys gather together, you're not doing any of that. It's actually making things worse. You are almost, in a sense, better off not coming to church. And then he goes on, look, let me remind you what the Lord's Supper is all about. So he goes on to the institution of the Lord's Supper, and the idea of the Lord's Supper is to show that it is a sacrifice. It is a remembrance of a sacrifice that the Lord Jesus Christ did. When? On the night in which he was betrayed. On the darkest night of of human history, when the greatest evil is about to be performed. The greatest good comes out of it as Jesus offers himself. He, he, he takes the bread of the Passover meal, he takes the cup of the Passover meal, and he then sort of repurposes those symbols to show how they are now representative of the new covenant that will be sealed and ratified in his broken body and in his shed blood. So then he, he tells him, look, 
The Lord's Supper is all about a participation in this one sacrifice as one body. We gather to remember what the Lord has done for us. So we gather this body, this bread is my body which is broken for you. Eat it in remembrance of me. This cup is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. Drink it in remembrance of me. Remember my sacrifice for you when you celebrate this sacrament. Remember how Jesus gave up the glories of heaven at the right hand of God the Father to come down into this world, to take on the form of a servant, to assume to himself a human nature, to, to live according to the law, to live under the law, to take on our sin, to die as an atoning sacrifice on the cross, all for you. Which is why in verse 26, Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, what? You proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. The sacrament of the Lord's Supper is, in a sense, a proclamation of the gospel. But when they come together as a church, despising the church and, and shaming the poor, they are profaning the Lord's Supper and profaning the proclamation of the gospel. Instead of proclaiming the gospel, they are profaning the gospel by how they celebrate the Lord's Supper, their conduct at the Lord's Supper. So that brings us now to our text this morning, as we're going to just look at the remaining two points on your outline from last week. Uh, I gave you new outlines with the first two points crossed out so you know where we're at. But we're going to look first at the discernment of the Lord's Supper, verses 27 to 32, and the celebration of the Lord's Supper in verses 33 and 34. And just a few uh, comments before we actually get into that text. If you notice both in verse 27 and verse 33, uh, Paul has a therefore there, so he is concluding an argument. And the way this passage is structured is that the conduct of the Lord's Supper, verses 17 through 22, match up with the celebration of the Lord's Supper that we see in verses 33 and 34. So when we get to 33 and 34, that therefore answers the problem that we saw in verses 17 through 22. They were, they were not waiting for one another. They were um, eating their meals and, 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 you know, and despising the poor and shaming the poor and despising the body of the church. They were not fellowshipping. Their fellowship meal was anything but a fellowship meal. So he says, look, then he'll say, look, the answer to that is to wait. But then the first, therefore, that we're going to look at in verse 27 uh, speaks to what we just saw in verses 23 and 26. So the institution of the Lord's Supper leads to the conclusion that we need to, when we come to the Lord's Supper, we need to discern, we need to examine, we need to judge for ourselves to eat in a worthy manner, else judgment comes. So that's the structure. So what we're going to look at uh, flows out of what we just saw, and then the last part will pretty much answer the problem that Paul raises at the beginning of this passage. So just a few uh, notes on structure there. But now as we get into our passage this morning, um, the discernment of the Lord's Supper in verses 27 through 20, uh, 32. Let me read those verses uh, so you have them in mind. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup, again flowing right out of verse 26, in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. 
But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord so that we may not be condemned with the world. Okay. So the discernment of the Lord's Supper. So again, flowing right out of verse 26, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. Paul then flows right into verse 27 and says, whoever then eats this bread, drinks this cup, in an unworthy manner will be guilty, will be guilty of the blood, the body and blood of the Lord. Now this idea of an unworthy manner. Now specifically to the context in which we are speaking here, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34, the unworthy manner refers specifically to the way they were conducting the fellowship meal and then coming to the Lord's table with divisions. They were coming to the Lord's table to celebrate a meal in which we are to be communing of one bread as one body, remembering the sacrifice of the Lord. They were coming with divisions. They were coming with, uh, in a sense, some despising the others and, and some shaming the others and unfellowshipping. They were not being, not showing the communion of the saints. So that unworthy, coming to the, to the Lord's Supper, celebrating the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, specifically in this context, refers to what we've just seen. But there's a way in which we can then generalize this for our day and age today. To come to the table of the Lord in an unworthy manner is to come, in a sense, in a hypocritical way. To come with sin in our hearts. Unrepented sin. Now, this is not to say that we're ever worthy in and of ourselves to come to the Lord's table. We're never worthy to come to the Lord's table. And we're not saying here that you have to be perfect to come to the Lord's table. That you have to deal with your business first before you can come to the Lord's table. We want to make that very clear. The Lord's table is open to all. The Lord's table is a table of grace. The Lord's table is a table in which you come to receive the means of grace. You partake of the spiritual food and the spiritual drink, and it nourishes your soul for our pilgrim journey. But if we come as unbelievers, if we come as with sin in our hearts, unrepented sin, if we're under the discipline of the church, under the discipline of the Lord, we, we need to not come to the table. We need to refrain from the table. That's why whenever we celebrate the Lord's Supper here, I read through the directory of public worship, our form for the Lord's Supper. It can become rote, but in those forms, not only do we read these words of institution to remind you what this Lord's Supper is all about, but then we provide a warning. It's what we call fencing the table. Fencing the table. Again, not to bar the needy sinner from coming to receive grace from the hand of the Lord, but to protect those who are from, from partaking in an unworthy manner. 
So if you do have unrepentant sin, if you're living in a lifestyle of sin that you have not repented to the Lord, if you're harboring secret sin in your heart, you need to repent of that before you come to the table. And if you're an unbeliever, you need to profess faith in Christ in order to come to the table. You cannot be an unbeliever and partake in a worthy manner of the table because you are not, as we will see later, able to discern the body and the blood of Christ. So if you come in an unworthy manner in general, if you come with sin in your heart, if you come as an unbeliever, if you come hypocritically, you will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. So verse 28, Paul says, then let a man examine himself. Look into yourself. Look in your heart. Do you see unrepented sin? Do you see that you're not even a Christian? Do you see where you need to repent? Do you see where you need to, to make amends? Where you need to seek forgiveness? Where you need to throw off those things in your life that weigh you down? Let a man examine himself. Paul will say this in the next epistle to the Corinthians. In chapter 13, Paul talks about self-examination there as well. Uh, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, Paul says, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? Now, okay, let me, let me, we got to be clear here, right? Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Right? Amen to that? Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But, 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 salvation never remains alone. It must bear fruit. That's why the epistle of James is so important. If you say you have faith, but you have no works to validate, to vindicate your claim, then your faith is dead. You must have works to validate, to demonstrate, to vindicate your profession of faith. Works are not the means by which we are saved. Make sure we're clear of that. Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But works flow out of a living faith and demonstrate and show not only to our own hearts, but to the watching world that we are in, in Christ. Right? Let your good works be so made manifest to those out there so they will give glory to your, to your Father who is in heaven. So Paul says, examine yourselves. Look in your lives. Are you in the faith? Are you relying and trusting alone in Christ for your salvation? Have you confessed all known sin? Are you living in sin? Do you have secret sins that need to be brought to light and repented of? Do you have relationships that are broken? Do you need to mend a fence somewhere? Are you even a believer? Examine yourselves. Paul will make this clear again in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. A very well-known passage there as well. Where in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as 
You have always obeyed, not as, much, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We need to do stuff. <laughs> we need to work out that faith. We need to show that we have a living, vibrant faith. Now, just so you make sure that we're clear, Paul always combines it with verse 13. We need to read it together. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. God is working in you. God is doing his part, as we'll see in our sermon this morning. God does his part. Right? And his work will be completed on the day of Christ Jesus, Philippians 1.6. But God is working in us. We must now work that out in fear and trembling. Examine yourselves. Examine yourselves. That's what Paul here says. Let a man examine himself. Back to 1 Corinthians 11. Therefore you can eat and drink of the, eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So do a self-examination. Again, it doesn't mean that if you have any sin in your life that you can't come to the table. That's not what Paul is saying here. We all have sin in our lives. Again, we can't come to the table perfectly, but we can come humbly, we can come penitently, and we can come genuinely, knowing that it is only in Christ and Christ alone that we have salvation. But if we, have, if we are somehow unrepentant, are harboring sin in our lives, are being hypocritical in our Christian lives, are not even Christians at all, then you, are, you, you may be guilty of the body and blood of Christ. Because here we see again, verse 29, For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Again, if you come unworthily, if you come hypocritically, if you come unrepentantly, you will eat and drink judgment to yourself. Again, that's why we bar the table. That's why, or I should say, fence the table. That's why we fence the table. That's why we warn people that if you are living in unrepentant sin, don't come. Deal with those issues first. If you are a humble, penitent sinner, come. Receive the grace that is available at the table. But if you are a hypocrite, if you are an unbeliever, if you are profane, if you are a sinner, if you are an unrepentant sinner, refrain from the table, lest you drink judgment to yourself. Now, there's a bit of a textual issue here. Uh, if you don't have the New King James, you might just see discerning the body. New King James has discerning the Lord's body. There's uh, some debate as to whether Paul means the Lord's body as in the bread of the supper or the Lord's body as in the church. Um, for me, um, I think you can make a defense for both. I don't see that you need to necessarily uh, have one or the other. I think both could be in view. You need to um, discern what the supper is all about. You need to discern the body and blood of the Lord, which is why we don't allow children to the Lord's Supper. That's why children, though they are baptized members of our churches, are what we call non-communicant members until they are able to make a credible profession of faith as they've been struck, instructed and, and raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. If they are able to make a credible profession of faith, they move from non-communicant members to communicant members. They are able then to partake of the Lord's Supper. They are able to discern the Lord's body 
the body and blood of the Lord, but it can also mean the church. If you eat unworthy, you, you, you are not discerning what the church is all about. The fact that the body of Christ is to eat one bread because we are one body. Again, 1 Corinthians 10.17. So Paul says, if you do eat and drink in an unworthy manner, which they were, he says, for this reason, many are weak and sick and among you, and many sleep. Now, this is not like sleep, you're, you know, you, 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 you become insomniacs or you, you know, become uh, whatever that disease is if, that you can't stay, stay awake. No, if you have a footnote there, it says dead. Sleep is always a euphemism for death, death of a Christian. Christians don't die, they sleep in the Lord, okay? We are in our repose, waiting to be wakened at the, the call of the Lord at the end of the age. But again, here he says... Because you are partaking in an unworthy manner, because you are not discerning the Lord's body, because you are um, not examining yourselves, he says, look, there are many among you who are weak, many among you who are sick, and many who have died. That's shocking. That should be shocking. Right? Because there's a part of us that doesn't want to fall into the trap of Job's three friends and and make the assumption that if bad things are happening to you, it means you are a sinner. Right? That's what Job is about. That's what John chapter 9 and the man born blind is all about. It is to teach us that sometimes tragedy happens in our lives and it's not the result of direct sin. It is not a punishment of some direct sin. So we don't like to make the assumption that, oh, well, a bad thing happened to you. You must be a wretched sinner. Or look at you. You can't get healthy. You must be a wretched sinner. Oh, look at you. You're sick. You're weak. You must be a wretched sinner. But what this verse is telling us, we don't want to go to the opposite extreme either. And not assume that because some bad thing happened to you, some tragedy happened to you, because some sickness befell you, because you are weak physically, or that you died, that it's not because of sin. Paul here is saying, look, you are partaking of the table of the Lord in an unworthy manner. You are not examining yourselves. And guess what? You are being judged. You are being disciplined by the Lord. And the discipline of the Lord comes in the form of weakness, comes in the form of sickness, and it comes in the form of death. Shocking, yes. Think of Ananias and Sapphira. Now, I, I can't tell you uh, for certain if they, are, uh, if they were believers in the Lord, but they were members of the church, that is for sure. And what happened when they lied to the Holy Spirit? Well, they were killed on the spot. The Holy Spirit took them out. Discipline. They were chastised. And this, this is specifically because we are in the very early period of the church, the formation of the church, uh, this very unique period of redemptive history in which the church is being built, the foundation is being laid for the church. But there we see, look, they do something wrong and the Lord takes them out in a moment in order to keep the church pure. Discipline. 
to keep them from sinning worse. Sometimes, in order to keep a believer from sinning worse, the Lord may take you out. I'm just, that's what verse 30 says to me. We shouldn't assume that just because you're weak or sick or have died that it is because of the Lord's chastisement or judgment. But we can't not assume that it's not because of the Lord's chastisement or judgment. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep because they are partaking in an unworthy manner. They are profaning the Lord's table. They are profaning the sacrament of the Lord. This holy meal that we are uh, graciously given that, that nourishes our souls for our pilgrim journey. And the Corinthians here were mocking that. They were despising the church of God, shaming fellow believers. And in a meal that speaks about the participation and fellowship that we believers have in Christ with one another through the one bread, they were mocking that fellowship. They were unfellowshipping. So Paul continues in verse 31, for if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. If we examine ourselves properly, if we discern the Lord's body properly, we will not be judged. Then he goes on in verse 32, but when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. So there you've got a couple of different words there. Chastened um, is the word uh, krino, uh, to judge, to discern. And then the word condemned is, a, is a, uh, sort of a um, uh, emphasized, a, a, a heightened sense of that word. Kata krino, condemned. So what Paul is saying here, look, when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord so that we will not be condemned. The chastening of the Lord comes so that we will not be condemned. As I said earlier, sometimes in order to save us from condemnation, the Lord will take us out. Flip over, please, to Hebrews chapter 12. A great passage on the chastening of the Lord, how the Lord disciplines His children. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 10. And here the writer of Hebrews says, And have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons? And what we have here is a citation from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. My son... Do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by Him. For whom the Lord loves, He chastens and scourges every son whom He receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons." Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but He for our profit that we may be partakers of His holiness. So here the author of Hebrews inciting Proverbs 3 verses 11 and 12 says, Look, don't despise the Lord's chastening. It's always for your good. 
Discipline from a loving father is always for the correction and the protection of the child. Now, human fathers obviously don't do that perfectly. But we ought, we ought to at least strive in our discipline of our children to do so for their benefit in order to instruct them and raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But discipline is always for our benefit. That's why uh, James will say, count it all joy when you face trials. Trials come to perfect, to correct, and to uh, rebuke us if necessary. Trials come in our lives to sort of remind us that this world is not our home, that we need to sort of wean ourselves from dependence on the world and focus on the Lord who brings these trials into our lives to refine us, to help us to endure under them, and then to perfect us. The, the, the purpose of trials are always a perfecting purpose. Same thing here. Chastening is always for our good. So do not despise the chastening of the Lord. Do not be discouraged when we are rebuked by Him. Because this chastening from the Lord comes as love. Verse 6. He loves those whom He chastens. And He scourges every son whom He receives. If you are being chastened by the Lord, it is a demonstration that you are His child. That the Lord loves you. Verse 7, right? If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? Right? If your father, if your parents do not discipline you as a child, now in our world, that's, that's seen as love, right? In our world, we're like, don't touch the children, don't spank them, don't discipline them. You've got to affirm them, right? You've got to approve of every thought that comes to their mind. You've got to make sure that they are happy, Right? In a sense, the parents become servants of their children's happiness. Make sure they find themselves. Never, ever, ever lay your hand on them. That's evil. What you're doing there in that model is you're creating little monsters. <laughs> you're creating little monsters. The world has it wrong, as always. Discipline is love, if done correctly, with an eye toward the correction and chastening of the child. And a father who loves his child, a parent, parents who love their children, will discipline them, will show them the right path, will lead them on the paths of the Lord. If you're without chastening, that means you're not children. If you're not being chastened by the Lord, it means you're not a child. You're illegitimate. That's what he says. So chastening is good. Chastening is good. And going back to 1 Corinthians 11, when we are judged, we are chastened. When believers fall under the hand of God's judgment, it's always a chastening judgment. It is always a corrective judgment. It is always to perfect us and mature us. And it's done so that we will not be condemned. The world gets condemnation. The world gets katakrine. They get the katakrino judgment, the, the condemnation of the Lord for their sins. Our sins have been paid for by Christ. Hallelujah, right? Praise God. So that way, everything that you know, the Lord does in our lives is chastening. It's refining. It's perfecting. It's pruning. It's painful, but it's for our benefit. So let us discern the Lord's Supper. Let us examine ourselves. Let us make sure we partake in a worthy manner, if we 
don't do that, if we don't examine, if we partake in an unworthy manner, we will be judged, we will be disciplined, chastened by the Lord. And that could wind up in being weak, sick, or being dead. So finally, point uh, four here, the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And we can wrap this up pretty quickly. We don't need to spend too much time on here. And again, remember these two verses um, answer the problem up in verses 17 through 22. So that's why you get the second therefore. So what were the Corinthians doing? Well, in verses 17 through 22, right? They were eating. uh, Each one was eating his own supper, verse 21, ahead of others, so that one was hungry. The poor come and they're hungry. And then the rich who are gorging themselves are drunk and and, and stuffed. So they were um, not fellowshipping. They were gathering together for the worse, not for the better. So therefore, my brethren, the, the, correct, the corrective is very simple. When you come together to eat, wait. Wait. Look, the fellowship meal is meant to be a fellowship meal. Wait for one another. Don't start eating. Don't start gorging yourself. If you're hungry, verse 34, eat a little bit at home. This is very practical. Eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. Look, what's worse? Eating a little bit at home so that you can wait, so you can gather together for a fellowship meal and then celebrate the Lord's Supper afterwards in a worthy manner, or hurry up to the meal, and then you're hungry, so you start gorging yourself, you get start getting drunk, and then you drink judgment to yourselves. The answer to me is simple. Wait. Eat at home. Grab a Snickers bar, right? What, the commercials of the Snickers bar, right? Need to take the edge off? Have a Snickers. Here you go. Have a Snickers. Take the edge off. Then he says at the end here, and the rest I will set in order when I come. We're kind of like, what do you mean, Paul? (laughs) Very enigmatic. Commentators were are all sort of perplexed by that. They all want to know, what is is he going to set in order? What's going on? Maybe there are things that he had heard that he's not made known in the letter that he's going to set in order. It's like, that's what we want to know, but unfortunately I can't tell you what Paul means here by this. All I can tell you is that he set it in order when he comes. Right? We know Paul makes another visit. We know that there are multiple visits and he sends multiple letters back and forth uh, to deal with this struggling church. But that's, that's the wrap-up here. That's, that's where we are. Uh, the idea, of course, of all of this is that when we gather for the Lord's Supper, we need to make sure that we are, exi- that we are, are, are in, in, at least in the strict contents, context of this chapter, that we're doing so in a worthy manner. That we are doing so discerning the body and blood of the Lord. That we are doing so recognizing and proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. That we're doing so as a, as a fellowship, as a koinonia with one another. That we're, not divid- that we're not divided, that we're not harboring sin or animosity toward one another, and that we can fellowship with one another as the one body. And then more broadly, when we come to the table, we need to make sure that we examine ourselves to see that we're in the faith. We have to come as believers. We have to come with no, no hypocrisy in our lives. We need to make sure that we are penitent sinners humbly seeking grace from our Lord at His table that He graciously provides and not coming with 
sin in our lives, unconfessed sin, unrepented sin, secret sin, harboring any kind of secret sin in our lives. And then we will be doing so in a worthy manner. So next time, Lord willing, August 7th, we're going to finally begin the section, another long section, on spiritual gifts. This will be, this will be a treat. Because this is, this is a subject that has uh, brought division in the church. Uh, we have denominations that are, uh, uh, solely uh, exist in order to continue to exercise spiritual gifts. So we'll, we'll talk about that, uh, Lord willing, again next week. Uh, as we say, you know, are the spiritual gifts for now? Are, are the, the, the specific gifts they speak about in this section, tongues and, 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 and prophecy, are they still in effect today or... Or have they ceased to function in the church as a whole today? We'll, we'll talk about some of those issues, and we'll probably address them as we go through these passages. But for now, we'll stop here.